Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. For the past several weeks, we've been studying the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. Uh, The point of this study has been to consider the concept of mission as it's revealed within these parables. And this morning, we're going to continue this discussion by actually jumping ahead a few passages to Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. Let's go ahead and begin by reading that passage together. Again, that's Matthew 13, 53 to 58. Matthew writes this. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When I was a child, there was one place, one town, that I liked to go to more than any other, and that was Mansfield, Missouri. I don't know if you've ever been to Mansfield. It's sort of out in the middle of nowhere, about 35 minutes east of Springfield. There's not really much there. It's a place uh, where Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote her Little House on the Prairie books, but outside of that, there's really nothing special about the town. It's only home to about 1,300 people, and although it sits very nicely along an Ozark hillside, it's a poor town, and so it's a little bit run down. If you've ever driven from here to southeast Missouri, then you probably passed it going 65 or 75 miles an hour down Highway 60 and may have passed it without even noticing it, just in a blink. It's really a pretty unremarkable town. But when I was a boy, there was no place on earth I'd rather go than Mansfield, Missouri. To me, Mansfield was special. Mansfield was where my grandparents lived. It was where my mom and her sisters grew up. So we'd visit Mansfield often to see my grandma and grandpa Cooper. We just lived a few hours away in Claremore, and so it wasn't uncommon for me to come home on a Friday afternoon and hear my mom tell me that we were leaving in a few minutes to spend the weekend in Mansfield. And I have to say, whenever she said that, I knew instantly that it was going to be an amazing weekend. Grandma and Grandpa had this uh, tree in their side yard with this low horizontal branch. And I learned how to climb trees on that tree. And one of the first things I'd do whenever I got to their house was run off to the side yard and climb in it. They had lots of good climbing trees. And I typically spent a good amount of our time there sort of suspended up in the air (laughs) over their house. Grandma and Grandpa also lived at the foot of this big hill that overlooked the property and stretched halfway up this hill. I'd run up to the top of that hill and overlook the town, sometimes sitting in a tree or in the forts I had built out of my grandpa's wood piles. Grandpa heated the house with a wood stove. And you'd walk inside and you could smell the fire burning. Whenever I smell a fire burning today, I still think back to Mansfield. I'd watch the cardinals out in the back of their kitchen window and 
When evening came, we'd sit on the front porch and talk for what seemed like hours as we watched bats chasing bugs under the streetlights. Then my brother and I would go to bed. And since there was only one bed for the two of us, we'd have to share it. And we'd fall asleep together to the laughter of Johnny Carson. On Thanksgiving, my cousins would come and we'd all cram into that house and eat our Thanksgiving dinner together. The parents at one table, the kids at another. At Easter, we'd hunt for Easter eggs in my grandpa's living room. And then we'd get dressed up in our best clothes and have pictures taken on the front stoop before we went to church for the Easter service. In the summer, I'd walk down to my grandpa's barber shop and I'd sit and listen to the local farmers tell stories and talk politics. And then we'd climb in his truck and we'd go home for lunch with grandma. And I could go on. I could talk about the scary stories my grandpa used to tell me about raw head and bloody bones. I could talk about how sometimes he'd take us hunting for Indian arrowheads. I could talk about how at Christmas all the men would pile in the car and drive to Springfield to eat dessert at Piccadilly's in the mall, which was our family tradition. I could talk about the blueberry muffins and the chocolate chip cookies my grandma would make for my brother and I when we left. But I think you get the idea. Mansfield was special to me. There was a lot of really great memories for me there. And one of the hardest things for me to cope with as I grew up was losing Mansfield. I never really expected to lose Mansfield. But then over time, things started to change, and before I knew it, I'd lost it. The town was still there. Don't get me wrong, it's still there. I could still go there today, but it's not the same Mansfield anymore. First, Grandma died, and then the house was a bit emptier. Every time we went there, I didn't hear her voice anymore. I didn't smell her perfume. I didn't hear her laughter after a good joke. We didn't sit on the front porch anymore and watch for bats. And then we got older. I lost interest in climbing trees and building wood forts. My brother and I got too big to share a bed together. First, Johnny Carson retired. And then my grandpa did. We moved to Wisconsin. One set of cousins moved to Brazil. The other started college. And so holidays were very often spent at home. And trips to Mansfield became pretty rare. Whenever we did go back, I'd get excited to be in Mansfield again, but every time I'd leave first disappointed and then actually pretty sad as I realized that Mansfield wasn't quite the way I remembered, remembered it. Mansfield had changed, or at least I, that's what I had thought. At first I thought Mansfield had changed, and, and in some ways it had, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized it wasn't that Mansfield had changed, not really. It was everything else. Life had changed. I had changed. Time had passed. And the things that made those moments seem so perfect as a kid, they weren't the same anymore. And those moments weren't ever going to come back. Mansfield, as I knew it, didn't exist anymore. I could go back there as often as I wanted, but it wouldn't be the same town. The Mansfield that I knew as a kid would exist only in my memory. I could never go back and visit it again. There's this saying that you can't go home again. It comes from the title of a book written by an author called Thomas Wolfe. The book is about this author who leaves his hometown and then later writes a novel about his experiences there. And then when he finally comes back home, the people there are so upset about what he wrote in the novel that he couldn't stay there anymore. 
And the novel then explores the author's search for an identity outside of his hometown. After he leaves, towards the end of the book, Wolf writes this. He says, you can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to romantic love, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame, back home to places in the country away from all the strife and conflict of the world, back home to the father you lost and have been looking for, back home to someone who can help you, save you, ease the burden for you, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time. Back home to the escapes of time and memory. I really can't think of a better way to state what happens when you get older and experience these changes that make it impossible for you to return to your, the familiar things you used to know than what Wolf wrote right there. I really hadn't understood this phrase, you can't go home again when I was younger, but after I lost Mansfield, I understood it perfectly. There was no going back there. No matter how hard I tried, it was too different. I could never experience it the same way again. Well, if you can understand the meaning of this concept, then I think you have a decent picture of what's happening here in our passage this morning. In a sense, that's what we're going to see unfold in this passage before us. Jesus is returning home to Nazareth only to discover that he can't go home again. Matthew says that when Jesus finished these parables, Jesus went away from where he was, which seems to be Capernaum, and he went to his hometown, which we know to be the town of Nazareth. According to Matthew 2.23, this is where Joseph had settled with his family after Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. This is where Jesus grew up. In fact, this is where he would have lived for close to 30 years of his life. However, according to Matthew 14, sometime, uh, 4.13, Sometime after his baptism by John, Jesus apparently left Nazareth and relocated in Capernaum. Nazareth was a sleepy country town of only a few hundred residents. And while there was a road that came near Nazareth, it wasn't necessarily an international trade route of the sort that ran ran through Capernaum. It wasn't the kind of place that you would go to launch a global ministry. It didn't have that kind of influence. And so it appeared that Jesus left Nazareth sometime after his baptism by John in order to select a location that was more suitable for his message, eventually settling in Capernaum. And this is where Jesus spent the bulk of his early ministry. Here in verses 43 to 54, Jesus finishes these parables about the kingdom, and then he returns home. And to our knowledge, this is the first time that Jesus has returned home since his public ministry really gained a lot of momentum in Capernaum. Now, according to Luke, there was one other time before this that Jesus had visited Nazareth. And we'll look at that passage in just a few minutes. But even then, that visit occurred at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry before he ever moved to Capernaum. So this would seem to be the very first time that Jesus has returned home since he moved to Capernaum. And this means that this is really the first time that Jesus has come home since the power at work in his ministry has actually been confirmed and verified. Again, there was a visit that Luke records at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but that was before the reports about the signs and wonders that Jesus was doing could really be confirmed. Jesus had performed some signs when he first came to Nazareth. He turned the water into wine at Cana. 
by that point. According to John, he performed several signs in Jerusalem during the Passover that followed his baptism. And it would seem that after coming back from Jerusalem, he also healed an official son in Capernaum while staying in Cana. Like from long distance, he healed the, the, the official's uh, son. Apparently, the people in Nazareth had even heard reports of at least some of the signs that Jesus had done when he first came back for that first visit. But at that point in his ministry, these reports would have been little more than rumor. Some people probably came into Galilee from Jerusalem saying that Jesus did these amazing things there. And some other people from Capernaum probably passed through the town saying that he healed the boy all the way from Cana. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. That would have been the initial reaction in Nazareth when he came home the first time. Sure, there were rumors going around that Jesus was performing these miraculous signs and wonders, but no doubt those were just tall tales. That's what the people would have thought. People are just excited about Jesus, and so they're embellishing a little bit about what he's saying and doing. Maybe maybe they're just looking for attention, so they're coming back from Jerusalem with this really good story to tell about Jesus, but that's all been made up. That's what the people of Nazareth and Really, probably most of Galilee would have thought at the time when Jesus first came home to Nazareth. At that stage in his ministry, perhaps the people might have thought that he was emerging as a political leader or social reformer or something like that. But from what they saw, he was still an essentially normal person at that time. Not entirely different from you and me. That perception would have begun to change dramatically after Jesus set down roots in Capernaum. The Sermon on the Mount, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of the paralytic, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the Sabbath controversies, the exorcism of the blind and mute demoniac, really everything that Jesus says and does in Matthew after the wilderness temptation in Matthew 4, that's all happened after Jesus moved to Capernaum. So the public perception of Jesus' ministry has changed dramatically in this time. As Jesus repeatedly healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead, and he did so not only in Capernaum, but in the towns and villages throughout Galilee, it became apparent that these initial reports that were coming out, they weren't just rumors. They were real. Jesus was actually doing these things. So he was certainly more than just some type of political or social reformer. He was this incredibly powerful miracle worker and he was preaching this equally riveting and powerful message about the coming of the kingdom of heaven when jesus came to nazareth before the people would have seen him as this rising political star who's maybe starting to get a little a little too big for his britches considering all the things he's claiming about himself but now when he comes home the second time he's a national sensation he's a superstar An absolute phenomenon. His fame is spreading everywhere, and it's doing so on the basis of his unmatched wisdom and power. So now Jesus returns home to Nazareth. And this is the first time that he's been home since all that happened. It's the first time he's been home since the rumors have been confirmed as fact. The country boy is returning to this sleepy village, riding on the wings of his newfound fame which has been fueled by the news of his supernatural wisdom and power. And how did the people respond? 
Do they show enthusiasm for their hometown hero? Do they greet him with a warm embrace and tell him how proud they are of him? Do they maybe even brag to one another? You know, do they say to one another, you know, I I knew Jesus when he was just a little boy. I used to watch him when Mary was busy. You see that chair over there? He built that for me. Is Nazareth a, a place of refuge for Jesus after the blasphemy of the Spirit? Is this the one place in Galilee that Jesus can retreat to and be greeted with a smile? Maybe not. You know, perhaps the people are jealous. That's quite possible, too. Maybe they hear all the attention that Jesus is getting, and they look at their own dreary dreary lives, and they become envious. Maybe they see Jesus walking back into town, and they say, Hey, look at Mr. Big Shot over there. He really thinks he's something now, doesn't he? I guess he's probably too good for us simple country folk now, ain't he? How do the people respond to Jesus when he comes back? Is it with enthusiasm or jealousy? No, it's neither of these things. It's suspicion. They're suspicious of him. Look here at verse 54. Verse 54, Jesus comes back home and he teaches in the synagogue and the people say to themselves, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They say to themselves, where did this wisdom and these mighty works come from? And this is is a very telling question because it underscores how very ordinary the citizens of Nazareth perceived Jesus to be. Listen, they're surprised at what Jesus is saying and doing. And the implication is that this is something new for them. I mean, the reason why they're saying, this is the carpenter's son, right? This is Mary's boy, isn't it? And James, his brother, and that's one of his sisters right over there, right? The reason why they're saying all that is is because Jesus and his family seem to be very ordinary people. They haven't seen this kind of wisdom, this kind of power come from Jesus before. It's actually kind of funny. You know, there are these apocryphal accounts floating around in the early church that say that Jesus did all these different miracles when he was a boy. Uh, For instance, one account says that when Jesus was little, he created 12 birds out of clay and then made them come to life at the command of his word. Uh, In that particular account, it's it's actually, again, it's kind of funny. I think Jesus even has the nasty habit of cursing and instantly killing other children that, like, bump into him. Uh, They said that he did that kind of miracles, completely contrary to his character, of course. But they would say that he would do those kinds of things. And and the reaction that we see here in this passage single-handedly refutes all these types of stories. Jesus didn't perform a bunch of miracles as a boy. In fact, it doesn't appear that he did absolutely any at all, because if he did, they wouldn't be asking themselves, where is this coming from? Isn't this the same Jesus that grew up in Mary's house? They're asking this question because that Jesus, the one who lived among them as a carpenter, or perhaps more accurately, a builder, he didn't do these types of things. So now they're wondering, who is this guy? I mean, that's the same guy, right? Well, if he is, then where is this power coming from? This is a very unusual for them. 
So Jesus lived among them as a builder for close to 30 years. It would appear at some point in time Joseph died along the way, and then Jesus took up the family business. You understand Jesus didn't heal Joseph. He didn't raise him from the dead. He just took over the family business and followed in his father's footsteps and became a builder like him. Kind of a general construction worker, a handyman. He did that until he was nearly 30 years old. And then when Jesus was about 30, he goes out to be baptized by John. John starts touting him as the Messiah. And then these rumors, which later proved to be true, start flooding back home that Jesus is performing all these signs and wonders. I mean, guys, can you picture it for a second? One day, the guy who's been working as the local carpenter for about 20 years, he leaves town. And then before you know it, there are these reports trickling in that the nation's greatest prophet has proclaimed him as the coming Messiah. And people are saying that he's performing all these signs and wonders. I mean, what would you think? You'd probably say to yourself, really, what? The carpenter? Yeah, I know that guy. You know, he helped build my house, but trust me, he's a pretty average guy. He's not the Messiah. Then this guy, after a brief stop home, this, this tradesman moves about 20 to 45 miles away to a neighboring city, and these reports continue to flood back in, and you can picture it, almost like a series of newspaper headlines. You know, local man cleanses leper. Construction worker raises the dead. He does it again. National sensation exorcises demons. And you're thinking to yourself, no, it can't, it can't be. That's impossible. I know him. I used to see him here almost every day. and He's not special. He's just a regular guy. Well, over time, it becomes more and more obvious that it's true. Jesus is doing these things. So what would you think when you finally come to realize that the local construction worker really can raise the dead? He really does have that kind of power. Again, do you know what the people of Nazareth thought? They were incredibly suspicious. They're asking themselves, where does this power come from? You guys hear that? They're no longer doubting that Jesus can do these things like when he first came home. They now realize that Jesus is doing these things. According to verse 54, they're actually astonished by Jesus' ability to do these things. They're astonished at the wisdom he's displaying as he's teaching. And this presents a new problem, which is where does this authority, this power, this wisdom come from? That's the question these people are asking themselves. They want to know, where did this man get this stuff? How can an ordinary man suddenly demonstrate such extraordinary power? How can an uneducated man suddenly possess such remarkable wisdom and insight? It has to be coming from somewhere. I mean, surely this can't be something that Jesus simply possesses in himself. Otherwise, he'd have demonstrated these qualities his entire life. And if it's something he possessed naturally, then you'd think that at least some of those qualities would be evident in his family as well. But no, none of this is the case with Jesus. So where is this power coming from? That's what the people of Nazareth want to know. And just so you know, this is precisely the question they should be asking. They should want to know how an otherwise average carpenter can suddenly begin to say and do these things. After all, that's the whole point 
of the supernatural feats. The signs are supposed to direct the audience back to the source, which in this case is God, so that they can discern the authority of Jesus' message. Jesus is out there proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and he's not proclaiming that message by his own authority. He's proclaiming it as a message from his Father. He is the Son sent from the Father to proclaim the coming of His kingdom. The signs and the wonders, even the wisdom of His teaching at a certain level, that all testifies to the source. And it's meant to authenticate Jesus' message as being sent from God. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 12, after the blasphemy of the Spirit. The Pharisees accuse Him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And you guys hear that there. Where did Jesus get His power from when He says that? He's telling us it came from the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus was so radically different after his baptism by John. He did get this power from somewhere. It came from the Holy Spirit who descended upon him at his baptism. He empowered Jesus to perform these signs and wonders, and he did so so that the words that were uttered at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, that those words might be verified to everyone in Israel, and they repent and believe. So this is a legitimate question they're asking. Where does Jesus' wisdom and power come from? And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees have already offered an answer to that question. They too recognized Jesus' works. They too recognized His great power. And they too tried to assign a source to His power. Once again, we see this back in chapter 12 when they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So then, what about the people of Nazareth? Where do they think Jesus gets this power from? You know, Matthew doesn't tell us explicitly, but he says in verse 57 that, quote, they took offense at him. The word there is scandalizo. It's the word from which we get the term scandal. They're scandalized by him. In other words, they found Jesus disturbing to the degree that they were even offended or angered at him. And if we're reading this in context, then I think it's probably safe to assume that they agree with the scribes and the Pharisees. This is why they're offended. They assume the reason why this construction worker can do all these things is because he's evil. He's a kind of sorcerer in their eyes. He's more like one of Pharaoh's magicians than he is Moses. And so they reject Jesus. So Jesus is rejected even in in his own hometown. That can seem kind of odd. If anyone should know that Jesus is not in league with Satan, you'd think it's the people of Nazareth. They witnessed his character and integrity for close to 30 years, and so they more than anyone should be able to see how crazy that idea is. Jesus was a good man. He was a righteous man, and they should know that. They should know that there is no possible way that you know Jesus, of all people, would ever turn to the dark side, so to speak. So why did they reject Jesus? What's the reasoning? They've already alluded to it in verses 55 and 56. When they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? 
You see, guys, the problem, the problem that they have is that Jesus is one of them. He's the carpenter's son. He's Mary's boy. For some, he's a brother-in-law. In other words, he's just so remarkably common. He's too much like them. They just can't bring themselves to believe that someone so unremarkable can be so remarkable and live under their noses for so long and they not know it. The Messiah can't be from Nazareth. He can't be a carpenter. He should be a prince in Jerusalem. He should be someone special, not someone as common and unremarkable as they are. And Jesus confirms this point, this is, that this is the reason why they're rejecting him. When he tells his disciples in verse 57, a prophet it was not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. The fact is, people just can't bring themselves a lot of times to respect someone that they're familiar with. They want to be wowed. And if someone is accessible to them, if they're in any way like them, they're not wowed. They're not impressed. You know, this is why companies will often hire someone they don't know from outside the company rather than someone they do know from inside the company. Of course, sometimes they'll do that because they want a fresh infusion of ideas or something like that. But a lot of times, they're simply more impressed by the candidates they don't know than the people they do know. There's a mystery in the unknown that can make someone seem superior, whereas the person inside the organization, they already know everything about their flaws, and they're completely unremarkable. This is ultimately why the people of Nazareth couldn't accept Jesus. They were too familiar with him. And because they were familiar with him, he seemed common. And that's why I assumed that he had got his power from dark sources rather than from God. Matthew summarizes the results of this unbelief in verse 58 when he says that Jesus did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Mark says in his gospel that Jesus could not do many mighty works there. Matthew says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there. And if we're understanding what Matthew reveals earlier in this gospel about Jesus' miracles, then we can understand that they're really probably saying the same thing. When Mark says that Jesus could not do many works in Nazareth, he isn't saying that Jesus lacks the power to do these miracles. There he even records that Jesus actually did lay hands on a few sick people in Nazareth and heal them. So clearly Jesus did have the ability to do miracles in Nazareth. But what Matthew explains earlier in this gospel is that Jesus would not perform miracles for those who weren't receptive to them. This isn't to say that a person had to accept Jesus before he would perform some sign for them. Sometimes he did perform signs in order for people to believe, not because they believed. But at the same time, Jesus would not perform miracles for people who are hard-hearted. In a sense, he wouldn't do anything for someone that would refuse the miracle once it was performed. And Jesus states the reason for this earlier in this chapter when he says in verse 12 that, quote, to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Just as Jesus refused to share the secrets of the kingdom to those who would only reject them, so also he refused to perform miracles for those who would only reject their meaning. So I don't think we should assume that Jesus could not heal the people of Nazareth, nor should we assume that he would not heal the people of Nazareth. Rather, we should understand that he did not heal the people of Nazareth, and the reason was due to their unfaithfulness, their stubbornness of heart, their shortcomings, not Jesus. 
I mean, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has healed everyone that has come to him and asked for his help. So we have to assume that if Jesus did only a few mighty works there, if according to Mark, he laid his hand only on a few sick people, then we have to assume that the people of Nazareth are so hard of heart that they won't even come to Jesus and ask for help. And and again, the problem this time isn't that they don't think Jesus can help them. They doubted Jesus before, but not anymore. They're actually astonished at his power. They know he can do these things. They just don't think it's from a legitimate source. And so rather than come out and be healed by this sorcerer, they keep their distance. And because of this, Jesus cannot do many mighty works there. It's actually an utterly tragic situation. The great physician, right? He's there in Nazareth able and willing to take away their illnesses and remove their afflictions. But they're so stubborn, they turn away and blind themselves to him and cut themselves off from his blessing. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus was thinking at this time, but you have to think that this hurts. Jesus is being rejected by his closest friends, even, we would assume, some of his relatives. He is, in a sense, being betrayed by those who are closest to him. Surely this is part of the Messianic suffering. As it says in Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's what's going on here. Jesus' suffering at the hands of his own people as they reject him. So now, why did Jesus do this? It's kind of curious, isn't it? Why would he make this 40-something mile journey from Capernaum to Nazareth, right? From this metropolis out to the sticks. Why would he go through this just so he could be rejected? I mean, after all, Jesus knew this was going to happen. In fact, it had already happened once before. You guys know how I keep saying that Jesus visited Nazareth earlier in his ministry. Why don't you flip over there with me? Go to Luke chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 16. And let's look at what happened during that visit. In Luke 4, 16, Jesus comes into the synagogue in Nazareth on Sabbath. And he teaches a brief lesson about how he is the fulfillment of the Messianic promises of the book of Isaiah. Now look at verse 22. Luke says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Does that sound kind of familiar? It's the same objection that they're bringing up in Jesus' second visit. And it gets even better. Jesus says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus makes pretty much the exact same statement then that he makes when he comes the second time with the disciples. So he's not unaware of this principle that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. And boy, is Jesus not welcome in Nazareth during the first visit. Because if you look in the exchange that follows, the people actually drive Jesus out of town and try to throw him over a cliff. So I think Jesus already understood the meaning of this proverbial statement pretty well when he first came to visit Nazareth and experienced it firsthand. 
So why is he coming back? I mean, the people already tried to throw him off a cliff once. What does he expect is going to happen when he comes home again? And you know what the answer is? You know what Jesus, Jesus expects? He expects rejection. Jesus knows that he's going to be rejected, and that's actually why he comes home. He comes back to Nazareth to be rejected. You see, Jesus knows what's awaiting for him in Nazareth. He's been through it before. And really, even if he hadn't, he'd still know what to expect because it's been the same reception that he's received throughout every town and village in Galilee. So Jesus could expect a general rejection in Nazareth just as he could in every other place. But Jesus still goes out of his way. He goes some some 40 miles back to Nazareth to be rejected here specifically. And the reason is because he has a very important lesson that he wants to teach his disciples. And that lesson, brothers and sisters, is you can't go home again. Not after following Jesus. You can't go home again. Jesus takes his disciples out of the way back to Nazareth because he wants them to see how he's treated in his hometown so he can teach them that lesson and they understand it. And that lesson is stated when Jesus says in verse 57, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus wants to show them this specific type of rejection, which they didn't get to witness in the first trip back to Nazareth, because he wants them to understand that they can't go home again, not like they did before. In the parable that happens just before this, Jesus compares the parables of the kingdom to a treasure that the master of the house uses to provide for those in his household. And that parable is really a charge. It explains the responsibility that Jesus' disciples have to share the lessons that they've learned about the kingdom to those who are in need. In fact, chronologically speaking, that parable would even culminate eventually in the commission that Jesus gives the disciples back in Matthew 10 to go and proclaim the kingdom in the region of Galilee. I know what you may be thinking there. Wait a second. Doesn't 10 come before 13? So how can something in chapter 13 anticipate something that happens in chapter 10? But you have to keep in mind, Matthew arranges his material thematically, not chronologically. And so we can discern from the other Gospels that the commissioning of chapter 10 actually occurred after the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. So this last parable is leading up to that. It's leading up to this mission in and around Galilee. Well, guess where 11 of the 12 disciples were from? They were from Galilee. And guess what happens right after this journey to Nazareth? Like historically, in terms of actual historical chronological order of Jesus' life, guess what is the very next event that happens in Jesus' ministry? According to Mark 6, it's the Galilean Commission. So can you see what's happening here? Jesus comes off this parable, which again declared the disciples' responsibility to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew shows him marching the disciples 40 miles out of the way back to Nazareth so that they can see him rejected in his hometown. And why? So that they can learn this lesson. You can't go home again. I mean, sure, they can physically travel to the towns and villages in Galilee where they grew up, and they still physically exist. And the disciples could go there. In fact, they will travel there. They must travel there. But they'll never travel there in the same way again. 
They've changed too much now. They've become ambassadors carrying this amazing message about the kingdom of heaven. And while one would think that this would make them popular, alas, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. So they shouldn't expect a warm welcome when they go back. They shouldn't expect a smile and a fond embrace. They should expect what they're seeing here in Nazareth with Jesus and the citizens of his hometown. They're going to go back home and they're going to proclaim the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what these disciples are going to hear? They're going to hear things like this. Wait a second. Isn't that Zebedee's boys? Yeah, sure it is. That's James and John. I know them anywhere. I used to buy fish from them. Oh, what's that you're saying? You come in the name of the Messiah. Really? Sure. I'm sure the Messiah couldn't have packed any better pair of ambassadors to declare the arrival of his kingdom than those two hotheads. Hey, wait a second. Aren't you Matthew Levi? Yeah, I know you. You stole two of my sheep last year as I was passing through Capernaum. Hey, what's, what's that? Say that again. <laughs> oh, I need to repent or face the eternal wrath of God in hell. <laughs> That's a good one. Hey, Aaron, come on over here. You got to hear this. Now, Matthew, I, tell, I want you to tell me one more time how I'm wicked and going to hell for my sins. Can you guys see this? People are going to be offended at them in the same way that people are offended here in Nazareth. Like they're going to get angry and downright mad at the disciples. So there's no going back really. Home isn't going to be home anymore. And if you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus Christ, or maybe if you're just counting the cost, weighing whether or not you're ready to make a full commitment to Jesus in faith, then this is what you too must realize. There's a sense in which once you follow Jesus, you can't go home again. This is something we don't always like to admit to ourselves. We like to pretend that if we're like Jesus, then there's going to be this warm reception. We like to think that those around us will see the goodness that we're proclaiming and the good fruit that it's bearing in our lives, and they're going to welcome us with open arms. But quite often, that's not how it works, is it? You go to your family, eager to tell them about the gospel of Christ, and they wonder how you, of all people, would think that you have something you could teach them about the character and nature of God. How you could think that you're so wise that you know about eternal life. They know you. They understand how unremarkable you are. They're not impressed. And so when you try to tell them about God, they're not convinced. They think you're just as clueless about those things as they are. They don't understand how the Spirit is at work in you to open your eyes and give you this type of boldness. And so they reject what you have to say. Just like the people of Nazareth do with Jesus, they may even become belligerent and perceive your words as arrogance. That you would think that you know so much more than they do. That you of all people can tell them about God. You go to your friends... And you get a similar reaction. They know what you were like growing up. They've seen all the types of sins that you've been involved with. They know who you really are. And so they laugh when you tell them that they must repent. You're the last person on earth 
that they think should be telling them to repent. They may watch you proclaim the gospel and then, and then struggle with your sin because, again, they know you. And then they call you a hypocrite for not practicing what you preach. Again, they don't understand how the Spirit works. They don't understand concepts like regeneration and progressive sanctification. These are all foreign to them, and so they reject you, and they may even become hostile to you. This is what you're facing as you follow Christ. When you choose to follow Christ, you immediately enter into a new kingdom. You enter into a different group of people that's entirely different from the world that you grew up in. You've changed. You've come to accept a message that creates a new way of thinking, a new set of passions, a new set of priorities. And this means that when you go home, when you go back to the old relationships, you're not going to look at each other the same way anymore. You now belong to two entirely different worlds, and so you don't share the same things in common that you once did. The things you used to enjoy, you don't enjoy anymore. You know, it's just like when you go back to a playground that you used to love to visit when you were a child. And after you've been gone so many years, it's still all familiar. You've seen it all before, but you're not going to run over and slide down the slide again because you've grown up. You've changed, and now you don't belong there like you once did. It's the same thing for those in Christ. When you believe in Christ, you're transferred out of the dominion of Satan and into the kingdom of God. And when that happens, you receive a new set of passions, a new set of desires that are completely incompatible from your old way of living. You grow up. And now these new desires are completely incompatible with the world you used to live in. And this means that there's often going to be conflict with those who are still a part of that world. So the new you won't be welcomed. Instead, it's scorned. This is what you must realize if you're going to follow Christ. There's a cost that comes with purchasing the pearl of great value. And that's part of it. You can't go home again. Those old familiar relationships are going to change dramatically and not always for the better. If you're going to follow Christ, you must be ready for that. You must be willing to accept that. After all, this is why in Matthew 8, when the scribe promises to follow Jesus wherever he would go, Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' disciples aren't going to have a home anymore, not on this earth. They're going to be rejected even in their hometowns and villages. Do you understand, guys? There's a sense in which we are all missionaries. There's a sense in which we're all missionaries. Because we're all called to leave home and proclaim the gospel, even if it means we never leave our hometown. As I said at the beginning of this morning's message, we've spent this past several weeks in the kingdom parables so that we can consider how the teachings of these parables affect our concept of mission. Well, here's a concept you have to consider. This is one of the costs of discipleship. There's no such thing as dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. To become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven requires a renunciation of your citizenship in this world. And this means that when you come to Christ, you instantly become a stranger in a foreign land. So I'd ask you, are you ready to be dislocated in that way? Are you ready to be alienated for the sake of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Because that's what this mission is going to require. Over the past several weeks, Jesus has already shown us, right? The seed doesn't always fall on good soil. And when the master goes and sows good seed, even then the enemy will sow 
weeds amongst the wheat. The coming of the kingdom, it may one day span the globe and affect all peoples, but it's going to be a slow affair, meaning it isn't always going to be received with joy. And that means we're going to be dislocated. As Christ's disciples, we're often going to live as foreigners and refugees, even in our own homelands. But as we've also seen, as we've also seen in these parables, we endure all this because we have a better hope. We endure all of this because we have a better possession awaiting us in heaven. This is why we choose to abandon the familiar comforts of this world. It's because we have a better inheritance awaiting us in heaven, and we now consider that place our homeland. So once again, I'd ask you, are you ready to live this way, to see yourself this way as a kind of foreign ambassador in this world? A foreign ambassador who's been sent to warn the world of the wrath to come and of the peace that's been offered by your king. You know, you think about it, and foreign ambassadors probably aren't always treated very kindly in times of war. After all, they represent the enemy. That's what the Christian is to the world. But just like we saw last week, if there's any compassion in us, any sympathy for the lost, if we share the mind of God in any way, then we'll be willing to endure that kind of abuse because the wrath of God is coming. It may be slow because we serve a gracious God who wants to give His enemy ample time to repent, but it is coming. And the one who has not turned in that day will be swept away into eternal judgment. So I ask you again, are you ready to accept that assignment, Christian? That you share that kind of sympathy and compassion for the lost? Are you ready to even follow in the footsteps of Christ by abandoning your home so that you might know, so that the the unbelievers might know the terms of peace? Again, no, we may not all leave our hometowns, but we are all missionaries. We are all on foreign assignments. Matter of fact, back at my, uh, I guess you'd say home church back in Nashville, we had a saying that we used to say very often, which is, life is a short-term missions trip. It's true. You're only here for a little while, then you go home. Right now we're in the foreign land. Are you ready to accept that assignment? Let's close this morning by asking God to grant us the courage, the hope, and even the love to accept it. Let's pray.